In a small, insignificant part of the world, a young man has just fired two shots that would change the course of history. The shots have just killed the Archduke and the Archduchess of Austria. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. This was the incident that started World War I. This excursion in history now deals with the events that led up to that assassination and to the events that led to the involvement of the different nations into this most horrible holocaust. The causes of the First World War go back as far as 1870, for it was in that year that the Prussians defeated the French in the Franco-Prussian War. They dealt the French a humiliating treaty. The French never forgot this national humiliation, and they waited and planned for the moment that they could have a war with Germany in the future. Then it would be France's turn to make Germany pay. Germany realized that France would try to get back at her, and so it was her main job to keep France isolated and to make sure that France never made friends with any great powers in Europe. The German chancellor who did all of this was Otto von Bismarck. Europe had a few peaceful years, but in 1878, the Ottoman Turk Empire, which extended almost to the Danube River and Austria, was dealt a death blow by the major European powers, and the Ottoman Empire was broken up. A Congress of Nations, those in Europe, now met in Berlin to decide what should be done with these peoples now liberated from the Turks. It was here at the Congress of Berlin in 1878 that two small provinces, Bosnia and Herzegovina, were given to the Austro-Hungarian Empire as a protectorate. A protectorate? Yes, this is where a larger, more modern nation will take over and run a more backward nation. It will show these backward people how to live in a modern world. The protector nation shows them how modern times and modern technology can be applied to a better way of life. It was further agreed at the Congress of Berlin that in the year 1908, a plebiscite, which is a vote, would be taken in Bosnia and Herzegovina to see if these people, who were under the protectorate of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, wanted to remain with Austria-Hungary or if they wanted to be free and independent. One of the nations that came to the Congress of Berlin with great hopes for itself was Russia. The Russians had fought hard against the Turks and now wanted for themselves the Dardanelles. These are the straits through which ships must pass to get from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean. Russia's entire history has always been to get these straits for herself. The reason she wants them is that the only warm water ports that Russia has are in the Black Sea area. All other Russian ports are cold water ports and most of them freeze over during the winter. Now at long last, Russia hoped to get her warm water ports. England, who was also at this conference, controlled the Suez Canal at this time and she didn't want any major European power, especially the Russians, getting too close to her lifeline to India. So England blocked this Russian move. Russia believed that since Germany and Russia were friends, that Germany would back the Russians and make the British give in to the Russian request. But Germany didn't do this. She backed England. 
Russia never forgave Germany for this. And in the 1890s, Russia and France would become allies against Germany. They signed a treaty saying that they would come to each other's aid in the event that either was attacked by Germany. The Germans in the meantime have made an alliance with Austria and Hungary. So after a while in Europe, each power had a secret treaty of alliance with someone else. And if anyone attacked anyone else, well, it was just like lining up a row of dominoes and then knocking down the front one and watching them all fall. In 1890, Bismarck, the brilliant German chancellor, was asked to resign by the new and carefree young emperor, Wilhelm II. He was an impulsive, headstrong individual and had a desire to rule the entire country of Germany by himself. So old Bismarck had to go, and go he did. Wilhelm decided that Germany was to become an imperialistic power and that she would have a colonial empire next to none. But you say, there are no more territories left in the world for colonization. The only property Germany could get would be that which she took from someone else. And the biggest colonial holder was England. So Germany went in for the idea of expanding her influence over the globe, right in the face of England. And naturally, England would do the only thing that she could, and that would be to make an alliance and join in a treaty against Germany. And so she did. Another reason for the war was that at this time there was a great armament race. Each country of Europe was arming itself with new weapons, the dreadnought battleship, the machine gun. Each was trying to outdo the other. So closer and closer the nations of Europe became involved in a knot from which they could not get untied. We now have three major reasons for the causes of World War I. Secret alliances, economic imperialism, an armament race, and now the last one, nationalism. Nationalism is the feeling of pride that a person has in his country and in his national origins. The people of Austria-Hungary are for the most part Croats. That is their ethnic background. And the people of Bosnia and Herzegovina are Slavic or Slovene. That is their ethnic background. Every person is born into a background like this. And each person, whether he admits it or not, has a feeling toward others of his kind. Over a period of hundreds of years, certain ethnic groups have come to dislike, even hate, other ethnic groups. A good example of this would be the continual feuding between the Greeks and the Turks. Even to this very day, Greeks hate Turks and Turks hate Greeks. The Croats and the Slovenes are another ethnic group where there has been great feuding over the centuries. Croats hate Slovenes, and Slovenes hate Croats. So now, do you think that after 30 years of being nice to the Slavic people that live in Bosnia and Herzegovina, that these people will vote in the plebiscite to be held in 1908 to be annexed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is made up of Croats and Magyars? Or do you think that they will vote for independence? More than likely, they will vote for independence. Once independent, how would such a little country like Bosnia and Herzegovina ever support itself economically? It does not have vast resources with which to trade with other countries. The answer to that question is, is that a small landlocked country, a country that does not have any seaports by the name of Serbia, has been waiting patiently for the Bosnians to become independent. 
It is the hope of the Serbians that since they are Slavic in origin, and since the Bosnians are Slavic in origin, that the two countries would join together. This would give Serbia a seaport, and perhaps together they could survive economically. But such was not the case. In 1908, Austria knew full well that the vote would come out in a negative manner, and so Austria canceled the plebiscite and notified the people of Bosnia and Herzegovina that they were annexed to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that was that. No, that was not that. In Bosnia at this time, there sprung up a new movement of young Bosnians. They decided that since Austria would not give them their independence, they would make life miserable for the Austrians by causing them trouble. They would cut telegraph lines, disrupt trains and travel, and become a general nuisance. What they hoped to accomplish was to make life so unbearable for the Austrians that they would finally throw up their hands and say, oh, for heaven's sakes, it's not worth it. And then, fed up with it all, they would then go back to Austria, giving the Bosnians their independence. It was a nice idea, but things did not go that way for the young Bosnians. When they began to cause their trouble, the Austrians simply declared martial law and then sent in troops to round up the troublemakers. The young Bosnians could either be rounded up by the Austrians and thrown into prison or flee the country. Yes, but flee to where? Well, the closest country to Bosnia was Serbia. Certainly the young Bosnians could find aid there. So many of the young Bosnians fled to Serbia. And there indeed, they were given a warm welcome and found amongst the Serbians great sympathy for their cause. The people of Serbia did not like the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina to Austria any better than the people of that territory did. But since Serbia was such a small country, what could she do? One of the things that Serbia did, she did in 1911. In that year, the Serbian Secret Service organized the Greater Serbian Terror Society. It was known as the Society of Union or Death. This terrorist organization, sometimes known as the Black Hand, was founded for the purpose of agitations against Austria in behalf of Serbian aspirations. In charge of this secret society, the Black Hand, was one Serbian colonel by the name of Dmitrijevic. He gathered up many of the exiled youths from Bosnia and began to train them in the art of murder, how to time and throw bombs, how to shoot a pistol at a moving target, by 1914, he could train them no more. He had shown them all he could. Now it was up to them to return to their province of Bosnia and to agitate the people to revolt against Austria. So the merchants of death left Serbia to return to Bosnia with the hope of getting the people stirred up enough to revolt against Austria. In June of 1914, seven assassins headed toward Bosnia with terrorist ideas fixed in their minds. Meanwhile, in the province of Bosnia, the Austrian army has just been on war maneuvers. Now that the war games are over, the Archduke of Austria is going to review the troops of the army. The Archduke of Austria at this time was Franz Ferdinand von Habsburg and he was next in line for the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He is sympathetic toward the people of Bosnia, and he has made his position quite clear that when he becomes emperor of the dual monarchy, he is going to make it a trial or triple monarchy. He is going to give autonomy to the Slavs. In this way, he figures, there would be a greater harmony for all the peoples living within the empire. 
The leaders in Serbia felt that this would wane the Slavic people in Bosnia away from their greater Serbia movement, which as you will recall, was the idea that Serbia and Bosnia would combine together in forming a new and greater Serbia. Yes, indeed, Franz Ferdinand was the one person who might prevent the union of Serbia and Bosnia. So it was that the Black Hand, the Union or Death Movement, had marked for death the Archduke of Austria, Franz Ferdinand. The time is now June 28, 1914. It was to be a special day for the Archduke and the Archduchess. This was their 14th wedding anniversary, and he and his wife were going to Sarajevo to inspect the troops of the Austrian 15th and 16th Corps together. Next, they would visit the little town of Sarajevo and be received by the people. Who could have known that a prophecy by a gypsy woman would come true? Once, when the Archduke had his fortune told at his circus by a gypsy woman, she told him, as she looked into his hand, that he would let loose a great war. Who could have guessed that it would all come to pass on this day? It was a bright and sunny day and the citizens had turned out in their gala skirts and jackets to see and welcome the future monarch of Austria. There were four cars carrying the dignitaries. In the first car was the mayor or burgomaster of Sarajevo. In the second car rode the Archduke and the Archduchess. And facing them in the same car was the governor of the province, Governor Portioric. Count Herrick was riding in the front seat with the chauffeur. Then, there were two other cars carrying other officials behind the Archduke. The crowd grew thicker and more excited. The Archduke and his entourage are now entering the main street. At the Camaria Bridge, the motorcade passed the first conspirator, Mohammed Mehmed Basic, who froze and did nothing. Standing a few paces from Mehmed Basic was the second conspirator, Mihailko Chabranovic. He did not freeze. He took careful aim at the green feathers on the military helmet of Franz Ferdinand and heaved his bomb. As it appeared in the air, the Archduke raised his arm to protect his wife, and by so doing, he deflected the bomb onto the street, where it rolled toward the third car and exploded like a roaring cannon. There was great confusion, and the motorcade stopped as the Archduke sent help to those wounded by the exploding bomb. In the meantime, Chabranovich jumped off the Mahaka Bridge into the river below. So that he could not be taken prisoner and forced to talk, he swallowed a capsule of cyanide. Unfortunately, it made him sick and he threw up. He was apprehended and held for questioning. Ten minutes have gone by since the motorcade stopped to take care of those hurt by the bomb explosion. And now the car sped towards City Hall. As it sped towards City Hall, the Archduke and the Archduchess passed three more of the assassins, Vasko Chabrilovich, Vahetko Papapovich, and Danilo Illich. They did nothing. They just froze in their tracks. Once at City Hall, the mayor, who had missed all the explosion and noise, was about to deliver his message of welcome to the royal couple. But before he could say a thing, the Archduke snarled at him, so you welcome your guests here with bombs, eh? The horrified burgomaster said nothing. He went on and delivered his speech of welcome. While the speech of welcome was being given and accepted by the Archduke, who had by now regained his composure, Governor Portioric, 
was in a discussion with several persons about whether the rest of the day's program should be canceled in light that there might be another attempt on the Archduke's life. Portioric speculated that another attack was unlikely. Besides, he says, do you think Sarajevo is full of assassins? A luncheon is scheduled for the Archduke next, but he overrules this by saying that he is going to the hospital first to see the bomb victims. He begged his wife, Sophie, not to go with him, as there might be more danger. But she replied that her place was with him. The motorcade now leaves City Hall and begins to go to the hospital. And as they drove off, they passed the sixth assassin, Trifko Grabez. He did nothing. The cars proceeded and were to take a turn from the main street onto Apple Quay, which would take them to the hospital. The mayor's car was in the lead, and instead of proceeding to Apple Quay, the chauffeur of the mayor's car made a mistake, a formal mistake. He turned his car down Franz Josefstrasse, and the chauffeur of the Archduke's car followed. He began to slow the car down so that he could make the turn. It was at this moment that Governor Portioric, who was riding in the same car with the Archduke and the Archduchess, now began to yell at the chauffeur, saying, What is this? You've taken the wrong turn. You're going the wrong way. The car was now at a full standstill, and not five feet from the car was Gavriello Princip, the seventh and most resolute of the assassins. Princip drew a pistol and fired two shots, one at the Archduke, the other at the Archduchess. In a moment, the spectators wrested the gun from him, and he was taken into custody. But what about the Archduke, the Archduchess? They were still sitting upright and looking calmly ahead. Portioric judged that they were both unhurt and directed the chauffeur to get moving. Then, all of a sudden, as the car picked up speed, blood began to gush from the Archduke's mouth. Sophie looked at her husband and cried, For heaven's sakes, what's happened to you? And then she crumpled into his lap. Portioric felt that she had fainted from the sight of blood, but the truth was more horrible than that. She herself was hit in the abdomen. As Sophie lay there dying, the Archduke cried to her, Sophie dear, Sophie dear, don't die, stay alive for our children. Then he sagged back into the seat in a cocked position. In a moment, aides of the Archduke were opening his uniform, and as they did, blood spurted from a great artery on the right side of his neck. The blood flowed over the green uniform and the cushions of the car. Now indeed there was reason for haste to get to the hospital. By the time they arrived, Sophie was dead and the Archduke was bleeding to death from a severed artery. A Franciscan monk gave them absolution and by 11 a.m. it was all over. Both the Archduke and the Archduchess were dead and the curtain began to rise on an unthinkable war. Immediately after the assassination, the Austrian government established a court of inquiry at Sarajevo to find out the facts. Under police questioning, Princip and Chabranovich kept quiet and would not talk. Then, Danilo Illich, one of the other conspirators, was jailed by pure chance in a roundup of suspected subversives. Under questioning, he broke. He volunteered to tell all about the conspiracy. In return for this, his life was to be spared. As Illich broke, the truth came out. It was related how the Union or Death Movement in Serbia had trained them, 
how one Colonel Dmitrijevich, who was a high-ranking official in the Serbian government, was the head of this Black Hand movement. It also came to light that the Serbians had equipped the boys not only with the know-how, but with the instruments of death also. Armed with this information, the Austrian government now took steps to make Serbia pay for their crime. In charge of the Austrian foreign affairs at this time was one Count Leopold von Berchtold. Here is one of the arch-villains for the cause of the Great War. Berchtold wanted a war with Serbia, and so he will betray the peace by deliberately lying, deceiving, double-dealing, and committing a folly unequal for its time. Since Germany was a treaty partner of Austria, Berchtold now sent Count Alexander Hoyos to Berlin to find out if Austria could count on Germany's support if Austria mobilized against Serbia. Kaiser Wilhelm II should have thought this one out, but the Kaiser told Hoyos that Germany in her customary loyalty to an ally would stand by Austria's side come what may. Why the Kaiser told the Austrians to go ahead and do what they wanted to do and that Germany would back them is only conjecture. But it is thought that Wilhelm II felt that this would only be a local war between Serbia and Austria. He also felt that Russia would not take any part in backing Serbia because Russia was not strong enough to help. Why, why look what happened to the Russians back in 1904 and 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese cleaned Russia's clock. Whatever the reasons were for Wilhelm II giving Austria the green light, his ministers in Germany, when they heard of what he had done, voiced no objection. And so it was that Germany gave Austria what historians have called the blank check. Figuratively speaking, Germany has given a check to Austria, and all Austria has to do is to fill in the amount of aid needed and the time that that aid is needed. From the hour that Hoyos returned from Berlin to Vienna, the die was cast. On July 7, 1914, the Austrian Crown Council met in Vienna. The Crown Council is where the men of authority of the Austro-Hungarian Empire meet to determine what course of actions should guide the empire. Here at the meeting of July the 7th, most of the members were in favor of war, all except one powerful count, Count Tisda. He was the premier of Hungary, and he insisted that this should be handled diplomatically. Without his consent, Austria could not go to war against Serbia. For the next seven days, Tisda stood his ground. Then, by the 14th of July, evidence came in from Sarajevo that was overwhelmingly against Serbia. The evidence seems to bear out the fact that if the Serbs had not given guns and bombs and trained these young Bosnians, the Archduke would be alive and well that very day. On July 14th, the Austrian Crown Council met again, and this time Tisda was won over to a policy of warlike actions. But there was a condition that no Serbian territory should be annexed by Austria. As far as Tisda was concerned, all Austria should do was to make sure that the guilty persons who were responsible for the death of Franz Ferdinand, were punished. Berktal assured Tisda that no territorial demands would be made on Serbia. This was an outright lie. 
Berktal was already making plans to partition Serbia. All Berktal was waiting for was the promise of support from Wilhelm II. Now that he had that, the way was clear. The German generals had suggested to the Austrians that whatever they were going to do, do it fast. Berktal not only chose to ignore this advice, but he deliberately kept Berlin in the dark about what he was plotting. Berktal went his merry way. When requests for information on developments were requested by Berlin, Berktal either ignored the request or made no reply at all. When forced to make a reply, he would do so tardily, with evasions and half-truths. One of the mysteries of today is, is why the Germans tolerated Berktal's contemptuous effrontery. On July 23, 1914, Austria sent an ultimatum to Serbia. The ultimatum had a 48-hour deadline attached to it. Either Serbia would comply with the ultimatum within 48 hours, or there would be war. The ultimatum read, 1. All publications in Serbia that were hostile toward Austria were to be suppressed. 2. Any organizations in Serbia that were engaged in anti-Austrian propaganda were to be dissolved. 3. There was to be no more teaching of anti-Austrian material in the Serbian schools. 4. Serbia was to dismiss any officials that Austria accused of spreading anti-Austrian propaganda. 5. Austrian officials were to be allowed to make inquiries to find out who was responsible for the assassination of the Archduke. And Austrian officials would be allowed to arrest two Serbian officials known to be involved in the plot. Six, Serbia was to allow Austrian judges to try those persons who were accused of being accessories to the assassination plot in Serbia. And last, Serbia was to give explanations as to why she allowed this to happen and Serbia was also to give apologies and assurances that this would not happen again. A copy of the ultimatum was also sent to other European governments so that they would know what Austria was asking. Sir Edward Grey, who was the British Foreign Secretary at this time, felt that the ultimatum was one of the most formidable demands ever imposed by one state on another. The Premier of Serbia, Premier Pasic, and most of his cabinet were out in the provinces of Serbia electioneering when the ultimatum arrived in the capital of Serbia, Belgrade. The officials of the Serbian government immediately returned to the capital and began working on a reply. As they worked on a reply, the Serbs also appealed for help to Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. Within hours, the Russians advised the Serbians to proceed with extreme moderation. In the meantime, Russia let Austria know that Russia would not allow Serbia to be attacked by Austria with the idea of the Austrians devouring Serbia. On July 25th, Austria gave assurances to Russia that no Serbian territory would be annexed by Austria. However, the Russians felt that in the event Austria was not telling them the truth, she had better make military preparations in case Austria did try to devour Serbia. France, when she heard of the Russian maneuver, wired their full assurances of support that Russia would be backed by them all the way. Tensions were mounting. What would the Serbs do? 
Most of what the Serbs could do honorably, they did. They conceded what they could. But Serbia could not agree on point number six, that of allowing Austrian judges to come into Serbia and try persons who were accused of being accessories to the assassination plot. This would be allowing Austrian officials to wage political warfare against her on her own soil. Instead of having the Austrian officials try the cases, the Serbians proposed that the cases be submitted to the International Tribunal at the Hague, Netherlands. With just minutes to go, Premier Pasic of Serbia gave the reply of the ultimatum to the Austrian ambassador to Serbia, Baron Vladimir von Giesel. Pasic said to him as he handed him the reply, part of your demands we have accepted. For the rest, we place our hopes on your loyalty and chivalry as an Austrian. Von Giesel, without even forwarding the reply of the Serbians to Vienna to find out whether the Serbian reply was okay with his superiors, looked at the ultimatum and replied, Austria demands that the ultimatum be fulfilled completely or I shall have to take my leave. At that, Pasic said to him, you are free to leave. On July 28, 1914, Austria declared war on Serbia and the Great War was underway. But how did a local war between Austria and Serbia ever evolve into World War I? As you will recall, Germany, since the dismissal of Bismarck as their chancellor in the 1890s, has made many enemies. France hated Germany for what Germany had done to them in the Franco-Prussian War. Russia came to dislike Germany when at the Congress of Berlin in 1878, Russia was denied her warm water ports. And in the 1890s, Russia and France signed an agreement of mutual assistance. The German chiefs of staff now began to plan for the eventuality that Germany would have to fight both Russia and France at the same time on two fronts. So the German military began to work out and formulate a plan whereby Germany could win in such a war. The master planner was a military genius by the name of von Schlieffen. He was the head of the German General Chiefs of Staff until 1905, and before he retired, he had formulated a plan that would deal with a war on two fronts. This is how the von Schlieffen plan would have worked if it were carried out correctly. Taking a look at the map of Europe, it would appear that a war with Russia would be a long one. All Russia would have to do to win would be to withdraw back into her vast territories and let the cold winters and the long supply line of their enemies defeat them. It would fail as it did in the case of Napoleon. So thought von Schlieffen. What Germany must do is to defeat France within six weeks. But how? How could the Germans break through the French fortifications? The answer is, they probably couldn't. So the best thing to do would be to go around them. Von Schlieffen's plan was to let the French attack the Germans through Alsace and Lorraine. Since the French had lost this territory to the Germans in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, they would be eager to win it back in this new war. So the Germans would fall back as if the French were beating them. And while the French were busy, beating the Germans in Alsace and Lorraine, the Germans with three-fourths of their army would cut through neutral Belgium, 
strike France where she wasn't expecting it. While the French armies were well into Alsace and Lorraine, the Germans would come through neutral Belgium, take Paris, cut off the French army's supplies, attack them from the rear, and all this would be done on a timetable of about six weeks. Six weeks? Why six weeks? Von Schlieffen felt that it would take at least six weeks for the Russians to mobilize and get their men into uniform. Now with the French defeated, the German armies could be rushed to the Russian front and there they could defeat the Russians. Well, that was it. And Germany put all of her faith into this plan. She even had 13 east-west railroads built to facilitate the movement of troops from one frontier to the other. The schedules were worked out so that the trains would pass about every 10 minutes. Notice, if you will, that the von Schlieffen plan calls for war first and then mobilization by the Russians. It is this little point that would become the stumbling block for the plan and the reason for Germany declaring war on the countries of Europe. According to Germany's plan, Germany must declare war on her enemies before her enemies mobilized. Now some unexpected things began to happen. Russian generals asked the Tsar to mobilize in the light that Austria had attacked Serbia. As far as they were concerned, it made good sense to get ready for war by mobilizing just in case they became involved in the dispute. As you can see, this throws a monkey wrench into the von Schlieffen plan. War was supposed to be declared first, and then the Russians were supposed to mobilize. If they mobilized first, well, that would screw up the whole plan. So when the Russians started to mobilize, Kaiser Wilhelm II sent a message to the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas. In the telegrams he sent, Wilhelm pointed out that if Russia mobilized, threatening dangers of war existed and that Germany would be forced to take drastic action. And Germany gave Russia an ultimatum of 12 hours, demanding a cessation of preparations on the German frontier. On August 1st, 1914, the German ambassador to Russia, Portalis, went to see the Russian Foreign Secretary, Sazanov. It was the last vain try for peace. On instructions from Berlin, if the Russians had not abandoned their mobilization orders, Portalis was to present Russia with the formal declarations of war. At about 7 p.m., the two men faced each other, and three times Portalis asked Sazanov, would Russia call off the mobilization? And three times Sazanov replied, no. In that case, says Portalis, I am instructed to give you this note. It is a declaration of war. Now, four nations were at war. German intelligence knew of the secret treaty that France had with Russia, and so Germany sent a wire to France asking what position France was going to take now that Germany and Russia were in a state of war. The French, in their own way, answered the question by saying, France would be guided by her own interests. At that, the Germans declared war on France. Now, five nations were at war. What about England? How did she become involved in this dispute? England became involved because of a treaty that she had signed back in 1839. This was the International Neutrality Treaty signed by the nations of Europe, and it guaranteed the independence of Belgium. England believed that if a strong power took Belgium, it would be a threat to her. 
Germany now sent her ambassadors to find out if England would go to war, as Germany put it, over a scrap of paper. When the Germans found out that England was ready to go to war against any country that would violate Belgian neutrality, well, the German ambassador packed his bags and headed for Berlin, as he knew that the von Schlieffen plan would be going into effect and going through Belgium. And sure enough, on August the 4th, 1914, as the German army started to go through Belgium, England declared war on Germany. Now there were six nations at war. What started out to be a localized fight had now mushroomed into a great and costly conflagration. What are some of the significances that might be drawn from these events that will lead to the death of over a million persons? None of the great powers of Europe wanted a European war to the finish. All the rulers of Europe and their ministers knew that such a war would be calamitous. The people of the different countries were not yearning for the opportunity to kill or be killed. Nevertheless, war came. The unthinkable happened because in each of the great states, leaders did certain things that inflamed the crisis. Or in some cases, they failed to do the things that might have eased the crisis. All shared to some degree the responsibility for veering onto the road of wasteland by betraying their peoples. The European governments had long been spoiling for what was to come, and each government in its different orbit did not strive sufficiently to guard against the possibility of a great war. Could it be that these facts point out that we should have better trained diplomats to prevent things like this from happening in the future? Could it be that it is the responsibility of all of us to do our utmost to prevent collisions by better understanding one another? Or could it be that we should think more thoughts of creativeness rather than thoughts of violence?